This debate, colleagues, must include all Americans because our decisions finally must have the informed consent of the American people who will be asked to bear the costs in blood and treasure of our decisions. When the lives of sons and daughters of average Americans could be risked and lost, their voices must be heard in the Congress before we make decisions about military action. Right now, despite a desire to support our president, I believe many Americans still have profound questions about the wisdom of relying too heavily on a, preempt on a preemptive, go-it-alone military approach. Acting now on our own might be a sign of our power. Acting sensibly and in a measured way in concert with our allies, with bipartisan congressional support, would be a sign of our strength. There have been questions raised about the nature and urgency of Iraq's threat and our response to that threat. Back in 2002, the great progressive Senator Paul Wellstone spoke those very words on the Senate floor as he outlined his opposition to the move to authorize the use of force against Iraq. Now, I replayed that clip to channel that moment today when it seems as if that very playbook that was used to gin up a war against Iraq is back. The Warhawk ideologues are fanning the flames of hate against Iran using lies and a complicit media rolling over and projecting new lies. So we're going to dig in today to the possibility and the worrying possibility of a war against Iran. And I'll also have a wide-ranging talk with the National President of the Flight Attendants Union about the lives of flight attendants and the future of labor. This is Jonathan Tassini, and this is the Working Life Podcast for May 22nd, 2019. And a reminder, first, that the podcast is sponsored by the National Union of Healthcare Workers, a member-led movement for democracy, quality patient care, and a stronger voice in the workplace. You can hear the podcast in so many places, the Progressive Radio Network, Spotify, and of course on iTunes. We depend not just on our large sponsors, but also on our small financial supporters. So please go over to workinglife.org. Click on the podcast tab and look for a link to Patreon so you can become a financial sponsor of the show at whatever level you can afford. Alas, I am never surprised by the desire of some to go to war in this country. Usually it's the people who will never actually serve or have a family member killed or wounded in a war. And it's usually someone who wants to go to war for profit, say the CEO of a defense contractor. Still, it's worth reminding people of the cost of the Iraq war. Well above $3 trillion, and that's probably a minimum number, a cost carried by every single taxpayer in the country, not to mention the tens of thousands of lives Iraqi and American and others lost in the war and the hundreds of thousands of civilians wounded and displaced by that war and the ensuing civil war in Syria and the rise of ISIS. And those were all consequences of the raining down of bombs, missiles, and other death instruments from the U.S. war machine on Iraq. And so here we go again, the slow but steady laying of the groundwork for a war against Iran. 
the threat to deploy tens of thousands of U.S. troops near Iran, which you've probably heard about in the media, and the media's very promotion of the lies surrounding Iran, reprising the media's role that it played almost two decades ago when it hyped up the threats posed by Iraq. Now, you may recall that in May 2018, the dangerous ignoramus in the White House pulled the U.S. out of what is called the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, and the acronym for that is JCPOA, and that was a deal with Iran that is also known as the Iran nuclear deal. Now, I and many people had a lot of criticisms of Barack Obama's foreign policy, not the least of which was his significant increase in ordering drone strikes, which have killed hundreds of civilians, and the empowering of Saudi Arabia to carry out a brutal air war against Yemen. But Obama's willingness to negotiate the nuclear deal with Iran, despite vehement opposition from Israel, was a significant agreement to tamp down the flames of hostility between the U.S. and Iran. But to the glee of the Warhawks, the U.S. pulled out of the deal, giving a new megaphone to those who are just itching to go to war. And among those Warhawks is our modern-day Dr. Strangelove, John Bolton, who, in a whole cast of horrible characters in the administration, Bolton is especially despicable. To give a read on the possibility of a looming war, it's good to welcome back Phyllis Bennis, the director of the new internationalism project at the Institute for Policy Studies. And Phyllis, since I always like to quote the great philosophers of our time, I feel like this is deja vu all over again, as Yogi Berra would have said. And it it just feels like we're going back to the run-up to the Iraq war with both the ideologues spreading propaganda and too much of the traditional mainstream media just picking that propaganda up and spreading it. And the first thing I think we should say to my listeners and lay out kind of a standard and some information is talk about first what the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the agreement that's generally known as the Iran Agreement, the Iran Nuclear Agreement, what did it do and what did it say roughly? The Iran Nuclear Agreement was, by any measure, the crowning achievement of Obama administration diplomacy. It's interesting, when you look at the foreign policy accomplishments of the Obama administration, those that were abject failures, such as Syria, Libya, a few others, were those where diplomacy was abandoned in favor of the use of force. Those that are widely viewed as successful, whether it's the uh, Paris Accord uh, on, on the environment, opening up relations with Cuba, and most importantly, the Iran nuclear deal, are all examples of situations where diplomacy was put first and foremost. That should be a lesson for other administrations. So far, clearly, it has not been. The Iran nuclear deal was based on one principle. What can we, as a number of countries in the world, the six signatures were Iran plus five others, the United States, Russia, China, uh, France, and Germany, uh, who all of whom, with the exception of Germany, are nuclear weapon states themselves. What could they do 
to stop the possibility that at some point in the future, Iran might decide to try and build a nuclear weapon. At the time that it was signed in 2015, all the U.S. intelligence agencies and all those internationally agreed, as did the U.N. watchdog agency that actually has the scientists to confirm these things, everybody agreed Iran does not have a nuclear weapon, is not building a nuclear weapon, and has never made the decision to try to build a nuclear weapon. Having said that, it did have, Iran did have the capacity to enrich uranium for the purpose of nuclear power, which they use domestically. And when you have the capacity to enrich uranium to a low level, which is what you need for power, it's really the same technology to enrich it to a much higher level, which is what you would need for a weapon. So in theory, Iran had the knowledge base and the machinery that over time in the future could have been used if they decided. It was all completely conditional. They didn't have a nuke. They weren't trying to build a nuke. That was the key thing. And the agreement said Iran will agree to not just promise not to build a nuclear weapon, but it actually got rid of 97% of the enriched uranium it had, put its enrichment machines mostly off offline, and agreed to very intensive, constant monitoring by the UN watchdog agency. Everybody agrees Iran was abiding by that. In return, the US and the others agreed to lift the nuclear-related sanctions that had been imposed on Iran and that were creating havoc with the Iranian economy, not having much impact on the government or the military, as is usual in most countries, but having a terrible impact on the population overall. That started to happen a little bit, but it hadn't gone very far. And one of the first things, as everybody knows, when Trump came in was to withdraw from the deal. When Trump did that, he immediately reimposed a bunch of the sanctions that the U.S. had lifted. So it made an already bad situation in Iran, because other sanctions were still in place, much worse. It continued to make things worse. And the, the, the faction of the Iranian leadership that had signed off on the deal, telling their population that if we get this deal, it's going to make things better economically because the sanctions will be lifted, suddenly they couldn't point to anything because everything was getting bad again. So they started to lose credibility, lose popular support. And who gains? Of course, the hardliners gain. Those who say, well, we shouldn't give up the possibility that at some point in the future we might change our mind, might want to have a nuclear weapon. We probably don't. But, you know, just the people who were not so, as interested in diplomacy. That has not changed. Iran continues to this day, two years after, oh, sorry, one year after the pullout of the uh, of the U.S. from the nuclear deal, Iran continues to abide by its terms. The claim of the of the Trump administration, they didn't really try to say that Iran is not abiding by the terms of the agreement. What they claimed was the agreement itself wasn't good enough because it only dealt with nuclear weapons. Now, of course, that's true. And that was the only basis on which it could ever be passed. Iran itself, years earlier, had asked the U.S., had tried to get a negotiated agreement that would have been called what's known as a grand bargain, that would have included all kinds of actions that the U.S. opposes that Iran is allegedly doing, and would have required the U.S. to do all kinds of things beyond just lifting sanctions. 
including normalization of relations with Iran, diplomatic relations, the whole thing. So that was never going to pass, and they knew it. So the goal was the single goal of preventing a nuclear weapon, and it worked brilliantly. It is continuing to work brilliantly. There is no claim that Iran is violating the agreement. Trump just didn't like the agreement, and of course he didn't like the fact that President Obama gets all the credit for it, as he should. So a couple of things that you mentioned there, just to circle back. The first thing that you mentioned, kind of in passing, but I think it's quite important, is to point out that with the exception of Germany, all the other superpowers, powers, um, countries that were part of this agreement with Iran are, in fact, nuclear states. They have nuclear weapons, not the least of which is the United States, with a huge nuclear arsenal. And I've always found it fascinating that certainly Americans and some of the rhetoric that is espoused and pushed out from here never tries to get into the place or the seat of the other side, meaning if you're uh, thinking from the Iranian standpoint or any other country and you're looking at the United States pontificating about having nuclear weapons or enriching uranium either for military purposes or for peaceful purposes, meaning for energy use, it's quite hypocritical for the United States to be pontificating about that. And the U.S. and certainly leaders, and I say this on a bipartisan basis, and you've been in this terrain for a very long time, they, there's never a sense of thinking in really, if you will, neutral terms about how does the other side view what you're saying? Exactly. This is such an important point. And what we have to do is go back to the Nonproliferation Treaty, which was signed years ago, first signed in 1975. And that treaty sets out two categories of, of countries that can sign. There's the nuclear weapon states, the five official recognized and considered legal, God knows how terrible that is, but it's true, that are considered legal nuclear weapons holders. The others are the non-nuclear weapon states, which is the rest of the world, basically. And the agreement was that these non-nuclear weapon states, all the other countries in the world, agreed that they would never try to build or get a nuclear bomb. And in return, they were going to get two things, and they're complicated, but the simple version is they were going to get, number one, access to nuclear technology and nuclear power to be able to use nuclear power for domestic peaceful purposes within their own countries. Number two was a commitment ratified in Article 6 of the treaty that the nuclear weapons countries would agree to mobilize and negotiate towards a nuclear free world, that they would negotiate an end to nuclear weapons. That's the part that has never been taken seriously. It's never been acknowledged by the U.S. as a serious commitment. I remember years ago confronting a State Department guy who had, among other things, helped to draft the U.N. resolution that ended the first U.S. war against Iraq, the Gulf War, back in 1991. And in, that, in the language of that resolution was language that repeated the commitment of all members of the Security Council, including, of course, the U.S., to move towards nuclear disarmament. And I remember challenging him, saying, well, you know, the U.S. has signed on to this before in the NPT and never agreed with it. Why are you agreeing to it now? Are you intending to abide by it now? And he literally laughed. And he said, no, we knew nobody would take it seriously. So there's that sense 
of impunity from the United States, we don't have to worry about disarmament. But non-proliferation, we will enforce with military force if we want to. No other country will be allowed to have a nuclear weapon. But nobody dares challenge our right to have nuclear weapons. Mm, That's a great point. Now, you laid out really in a wonderful uh, fashion, in a very direct way, what the Iran nuclear agreement said. And as you pointed out, Trump pulled out of that in May 2018. And what has now um, been created and what has heightened and inflamed the situation is, I guess, can be encapsulated in two words, John Bolton, who, as you quite well know, is just a rabid ideologue, a hardline right winger who is trying to essentially go to war against Iran for a very long time. And he represents that neocon, um, very hawkish right wing ideology that has been kind of poking around and trying to go to war with Iran for a very, very long time. Of course, none of these people ever actually serve in the military, and the blood that would be spilled would not be their blood or the blood of their relatives. So they, it's all about their passion for war. Uh, is, is that fair to say that John Bolton has basically created now the, the most extreme and heightened attacks on Iran? I do think there is no question that John Bolton is playing precisely the role that he played 20 years ago in the run-up to the war in Iraq, where, again, he was cheerleading for war. At that time, from the sidelines, at first, from one of the right-wing think tanks, was later brought in to be the temporary UN ambassador by George Bush, who knew he couldn't get him approved by the Senate, so he brought him in as a recess appointment, and he was only there for about eight months. Uh, terrorized and intimidated people across the UN. Uh, He was a terrible UN ambassador, although since he was representing such a terrible set of policies, perhaps that was appropriate. But he has been a cheerleader for war against Iran and for war against North Korea for a very, very long time, and Iran has been his main target. The problem we now face is that he's not just a cheerleader on the sidelines. He's now got the president's ear first thing in the morning and last thing at night as the national security advisor. Trump has made public that he is not happy with Bolton's views, particularly lately on Venezuela. He said that he thought he had been hoodwinked by the claim that it was going to be an easy example of of uh, regime change, which clearly it was not, and the regime did not change. And Trump felt he had been somewhat betrayed by his assistance, particularly Bolton. But there's no indication that he's prepared to get rid of him. There's no indication that there's a real divide between Bolton and Trump, despite the fact that Trump has claimed a kind of right-wing isolationism uh, on the military front, which he has never implemented, we should note. He talks about withdrawing troops from Afghanistan. They're still there. He talks about withdrawing everybody from Syria. A thousand troops are still there. So, you know, this notion that he somehow stands against wars has simply not played out in practice, despite his rhetoric. The danger we see right now is twofold. One is that the leadership of Bolton, Trump going along with it, led by Pompeo as well, the Secretary of State, who seems to think that diplomacy is spelled M-I-L-I-T-A-R-Y and and moves in that direction. All of that is very, very dangerous. When the U.S. sends a a set of B-52 bombers, which are, of course, the nuclear-capable 
bombers in the U.S. arsenal, and an aircraft carrier with its encumbering, accompanying group uh, of warships to the waters off of Iran, that's a direct threat. It's a direct threat, and it's perceived in Iran, not surprisingly, as a threat. And in addition, I just want to throw in the uh, talk about potentially putting out 100,000, or I think it was 125,000 troops yes. into the area. That, that seems to yes. be a direct threat. There is a direct threat of sending troops. There is a, another very provocative move by making the claim that we heard evidence completely lacking. We heard that there were threats against U.S. troops and others, uh, other U.S. citizens in Iraq, and so we're going to close the embassy in Baghdad and the consulate in Erbil. Uh, that, again, sends the signal that war is imminent, that war is ratcheting up. And the U.S. position is that sending the B-52s, sending the, the armada of Navy ships, this is all just protection. This is just in case. And nobody should treat it as anything else. And yet, when they make the claim that Iran has been seen loading missiles onto small boats in the, uh, in the Persian Gulf, that that is clearly with intent to use them. So that's treated not as a, as a protection act, the way the U.S. military moves are claimed to be, but as a direct, again, a direct threat. So one potential problem is that the U.S. would actually, looking back at the WMD scandal, that the lies about WMDs that led to the war in Iraq, the Tonkin Gulf Resolution that was a complete fraud that set the stage for war in Vietnam by the United States, all of these models are now at work here again. So there is the danger that the U.S. could use these escalations as excuses to actually go to war. I think that's less likely. Not least the military leadership is making clear that it does not agree with the assessment that there is a new threat, danger, uh, at least not all of the military brass uh, are not buying into that and not willing to give Trump's claim the credential that he wants. The bigger danger is that in the context of a place like the Persian Gulf, and particularly the Strait of Hormuz, where a lot of oil, somewhere between 30 and 40 percent of the world's oil, transits that waterway, a very small, narrow waterway that is very crowded, filled with oil ships, tankers, and warships on all sides, that somebody gets jumpy, and a young sailor on any side gets nervous, sees something, sees a flare going off from a boat and decides it's a rocket or whatever, and fires without thinking, all of that could immediately explode into a war that would have absolutely devastating consequences and that would be at a huge magnitude worse than the war in Iraq, as horrific as that was. So that's, in my view, the greater danger. Now, the overlay of this also we should insert is the role that Israel is playing in inflaming the situation in the Middle East for its own, I guess they would call it strategic reasons. Talk a little bit about that. The Israeli reasons are both strategic and, in my view, primarily political. Bibi Netanyahu, the prime minister who just won the election again, uh, is looking to be facing indictment any day now, and he has to keep his super far-right cabinet, because keep in mind, as right-wing as Netanyahu is, 
he's probably the furthest left in his government, <laughs> in his cabinet. It's a shocking thing, and That's it's scary, not. Yeah. It, is, it does sound funny. It's not. Yeah, I know it's not funny, but it, given yeah. the consequences, I'm being sarcastic has, in my laugh. But it is. I know, it is. I know, I it's know. amusing in that way, given how right wing he is on his own. But right, you've got the the crazy religious right wingers, and you've got the people. You have, he has put together a, yeah. a government that's made up of the right, the far right, the extreme right, and now with the addition of the Jewish Power Party, based on the party that was led by the now dead Rabbi Meir Kahani, leader of the JDL here in the United States, which was responsible for bombings and other kinds of attacks. One of their offshoots shot into my house in Los Angeles years ago. Uh, not a pleasant group. So you also have the fascist right within the Israeli government. And with that kind of scenario, he has to keep them happy. And one of the ways he keeps them happy enough to make sure that they protect him from the consequences of these indictments is to keep up, keep ratcheting up the pressure about the threat of Iran and claiming that he, Bibi Netanyahu, is the only one who can keep Israelis safe. And how do we do that? We do that by making the United States go to war against Iran, because Iran is somehow a, uh, an existential threat to Israel. Now, that's another one of these lies. Iran is not an existential threat to anybody, most certainly not to Israel. There's only one country in the region that has nuclear weapons, and it's not Iran. It's Israel. And the notion that Iran, which has not invaded other countries, we should note, in the last 30 or 40 or 50 years, uh, the Iran-Iraq war was begun by the Iraqi side. Uh, there's plenty of problems with the Iranian government. I'm no fan of the Iranian government, but we should be clear about what the history of it is and isn't. This is not a likelihood to, to come to fruition. If Iran, at some point in the future, ever decided that they were going to try to build a nuclear weapon, even that would not even be a, an existential threat to Israel. It would be an existential threat to Israel's nuclear monopoly. That's what would be threatened. That's what would be potentially changed, not the state of Israel, not the Israeli people. So, you know, that's what we're, that's what we're facing right now is the, these false claims that are taken as true. I will say that the mainstream press has been significantly more skeptical of these claims coming from the Trump administration than they were of those of George Bush in the run-up to the Iraq war. It's not to say that they've been skeptical enough, but there is a significant difference. You see it in the New York Times, you see it in the Washington Post, where there, there is a routine now in articles uh, quoting, whether it's Bolton or Pompeo or some of their acolytes talking about the, the new threats from Iran, they pretty routinely will insert the phrase, which has not been shown to anyone, which has not been shown to exist. We didn't see that 20 years ago. That's, and that's true. Important. But uh, let me push back just a little bit, and maybe it's just a degree, as you point out. When I look at the mainstream press, for example, the unpaid Pentagon spokesperson, Barbara Starr from CNN, or many of the news stories that I see, they don't even point out the basic point that we've made from the beginning of the program, from our discussion here, that Iran is fully complying with the Iran nuclear agreement. That is never... Right. It's I'm not ne praising yeah. mainstream press. Mm. There's all kinds of things left out, all kinds of context, all kinds of history, all kinds of politics are left out. Absolutely true. Also true is that it's way better than it was 20 years ago. It's sort of the same situation we have with the coverage of Israel-Palestine. 
If you look at it today, it's terrible, period, full stop. And it's qualitatively better than it's ever been before, precisely because there's been a movement fighting back. That's a fair point. And fighting to change that discourse and having huge success. Is it still terrible? Absolutely. Is our work over? Not by half. That's a fair point. But to not acknowledge that movements have changed the discourse is really to do a disservice to all who have struggled so hard to change it. And I wonder, as our final question and final point to discuss, to your point about movement and change somewhat of the discourse, I feel like, and I haven't really necessarily sampled every single uh, political leader, but I feel like that unlike in the Iraq war where there was a bipartisan support for war, with some exceptions, obviously, but there are certainly, to the extent that there were opponents, they were drowned out by both parties' leaders and many people saying, yes, Yes, war. Yes, Saddam Hussein is this awful person. Here, I think you're hearing from the Democratic side, at least. I don't know if there's any Republicans, perhaps Rand Paul might say something or one of those, uh, as you point out, right wing isolationists. But I, I feel like at least from the Democratic Party, there's less buying into that. Is this fair? Absolutely right. Absolutely right. Now, some of that, we, again, we should be clear, let's give credit, but not too much. It's true that there is pushback and there is skepticism. Some of that is because it's Donald Trump correct, uh, who is calling for it and his administration. We should note we did not hear this from the Democrats under Obama with a Democratic uh, um, Congress, partly, uh, when Obama gave in to Hillary Clinton's pressure to invade Iran. Uh, sorry, let me do that all over again. When Obama gave in to Hillary Clinton's and others' Uh, pressure to attack Libya. We didn't hear that kind of pushback because it wasn't a hated president the way this one is hated. And the use of drones and drone strikes and the support for Saudi Arabia and so on. Certainly the Obama administration did that. But there is a little bit of a qualitative difference. And so to wrap up, is your sense that obviously we have to be vigilant and call these people out. Is there is it your sense that this most aggressive posture on the part of Bolton and the like will have enough pushback to at least freeze them in place? Absent, though, of course, the situation of a potential mistake that then everything goes off the rails. Yes, I absolutely think that. In terms of a U.S.-initiated decision to go to war, I think there is pushback. We have to mobilize hard and fast and strong. But we absolutely have the potential to stop this one. You do not have the kind of bipartisan, bicameral, uh, elite agreement, elite consensus in business and in every sector uh, to go to war the way Bush had been able to to create out of the the tragedy of 9-11. You don't have that now. And that means we do have the potential to be able to stop this war before it starts in a way that we did not have the, the ability to do around Iraq. Once upon a time, a job as a flight attendant afforded decent pay and benefits. 
That's been a while, though, as deregulation and consolidation in the industry have brought lower pay, tougher working conditions, and outright union busting. One of the terrific national labor voices we've been lucky to hear recently is the voice of Sarah Nelson, the president of the Association of Flight Attendants, which is an affiliate of the Communication Workers of America. She's been speaking out, of course, on the challenges her members face at work, but also on the broader future of labor and society. And so it's great to have Sarah join me now. And so, Sarah, you are an Oregonian. You grew up in Corvallis, and you got a BA in English and Education and became a flight attendant in 1996. So what drew you to become a flight attendant? Well, I was getting ready to become an English teacher in inner city St. Louis. I had just finished up my student teaching. Uh, I did that in the ta- in the fall after graduating from college. And um, I was looking at setting up my first year uh, teacher uh, classroom and all that teachers have to throw into that. Um, and I was working four jobs at the time. My friend called me from the beach in Miami. Uh, she had been a friend I had gone to college with, and she had become a United Airlines flight attendant. And we'd kind of laughed about it. But she called uh, on this one really cold day in St. Louis in the winter and said, guess where I am? And I, she ribbed me a bit. But then she said, no, seriously, I really think that you should consider this. And she proceeded to describe the contents of the contract at United. She didn't put it in those terms at the time, but she explained the pay scale. She explained the, the pension and how it worked, uh, the health care, uh, the work rules that were in place that gave her a lot of flexibility. And um, this sounded way better um, than what I was going to be receiving as a first-year teacher, And I drove to Chicago the next day and interviewed for the job and I did just a little bit of research and found that indeed uh, the United uh, uh, working conditions and and pay were leading the industry. So um, that is really what led me to become a a flight attendant and interview in the first place was the union contract. And that's a great segue into the first question that I'm always curious about is when I travel, I sometimes try to talk to the flight attendants in the back because I'm always curious what their working conditions are like as a as a labor activist. And recently I was traveling and the the, the flight attendants, the whole crew was actually celebrating the retirement. I can't remember what airline I was at. It might have been United or Delta. I don't remember, actually. They were celebrating the retirement of a flight attendant who had been with the airline for over 40 years. And, mm. and at the time, as I remember going back flying some years ago, decades ago, that was, to your point, a good-paying job with decent benefits and flight attendants, I think, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, for many years, they could make ends meet. That may have been true about when you got into the industry. And now that has so dramatically shifted, partly because I guess the industry has consolidated and there's been a much more if you anti-union attitude, driving wages down. Is that fair to say? And can you kind of give the, the general picture of the life of a flight attendant over time? Sure. Uh, well, the first contract that we negotiated with my union was in 1946. Um, we steadily built a career. Uh, we had a, a modest pension, but it was a good pension that people could retire on, and um, you could have a, a really decent life. Um, September 11th hit, and uh, most of the airlines went into bankruptcy. 
and use the bankruptcy process to shed pensions, um, to cut their health care costs, uh, cut retiree health care, um, and uh, cut, you know, drastically cut pay, cut back in staffing, uh, cut back on many of the work rules so that Flyscents were working harder for less. And um, we, and then came the mergers and consolidation that really accrued a lot of power to the executives. And while we have recovered some of the pay um, and some some of the work rules, um, the staffing has not returned, and the retirement security is just not what it was. And so there are people who have had to work much longer because of this, um, because of uh, the health care that they need or because they didn't have enough uh, put away in their retirement savings. And um, uh, at mainline carriers, you it, it is really a middle-class job with the union contract. But what the airlines also have done is, um, because of the consolidated power with the mainline carriers, they make the regional companies, the regional airlines, bid against each other to the lowest cost. So if you were flying on a United Express flight or Delta Connection or American Eagle, and you're flying under that brand of that major mainline airline, um, and and flying on that regional jet, you're making 45% less than a flight attendant on that mainline carrier, even though you're providing really necessary feed into the larger network of these big carriers making billions of dollars. So we are working very hard to bring up those standards because as long as the airlines have the ability to just define the job differently and slash those pay and benefits by doing that, we're all in jeopardy. And, uh, and, and we're working hard right now to lift those standards. And that was perfect segue into the point I was going to make in a current fight you're having. And that's what led me to raise this question about salary. And that's with Air Wisconsin, which, as you just referred to, is the regional carrier for United. And I was reading here that, and this was actually a quote from you, that a first-year flight attendant can be making as little as $15,000 a year. And then others haven't have gone without a raise for 12 years and they just can't keep up. And that so blows one away because first of all, how can you make a living? How can you actually pay your bills on that kind of salary? And it really dovetails with the general, and you've been a labor activist and you've been speaking out not just about flight attendants, but other workers. It dovetails, I think, what's happening to workers everywhere, that the wages are being driven down. Wages are being driven down for a lot of different reasons. And um, absolutely what's happened to flight attendants is uh, relatable to uh, people in industries across the country. And that is that productivity is through the roof. We're working longer hours. We're working harder. Uh, we're we're doing more on the job, and wages have stayed relatively flat. Um, so all of the wealth that we have created as an American workforce is really going into stock buybacks, is going into executive bonuses, um, and there's a greater disparity um, in income in the country. And and so that's that's what flight attendants are experiencing too. And Air Wisconsin is an extreme example of that. Uh, real bad actor here, but uh, tossed into an industry where um, the on a balance sheet, somebody, you know, keeping track of these numbers is just figuring out this is a cost item and we can keep these costs low and, um, you know, benefit off the backs of these workers. And there's a, 
there's a separation there between the people who are making those decisions and the people who are on the front lines actually experiencing this and trying to provide for their families. And I think that this is something, this is certainly something that firefighters are experiencing, but it's something that um, people in all kinds of industries relate to. And this idea that executives can simply sort of redefine the job and therefore make it have uh, fewer rights, uh, less wages. Um, the, the long time fight to raise the minimum wage is an example, raising that floor so we can raise the roof. Um, you know, this is happening everywhere and uh, we're experiencing exactly what American workers in other industries are experiencing and we're going to fight back in the same way too. People are getting out on the picket lines. There's been more strikes in uh, 2018 than in America's history uh, ever before. Um, and I think that that is only going to continue to grow as workers understand, you know, things are really bad and they're really bad in a way that we can relate to other workers. And so we're going to support other people in our communities. When we were out on the picket line this last week for Air Wisconsin, we had 10 other unions out there with us because they understood that our fight was very much like their fight themselves. And, P and workers are coming out for each other. And that that solidarity is what's going to really change the conditions here, but it's going to take fighting in each workplace and it's going to take uh, building our unions and um, engaging people um, in, in our democracy to be able to change these things. And, and I think you brought up an important point about the notion when you were on the picket lines that you had a lot of support from other unions. And I've been doing a lot of segments on the re recent teacher uprisings across the country over the past really year or two years. And one of the extraordinary things that's happened there has been incredible solidarity and coalition building beyond the labor movement, but just with communities. And I'm wondering, do you experience a particular challenge with flight attendants? Because you're spread out all over the country and you, you don't work in some way in a, one factory or in one office space. How challenging it is it to organize people and keep them as a unit, as a solidarity unit, as one voice speaking together so that people are on the same page. Do you find that as a challenge? Well, it's an incredible challenge to um, organize when you have a mobile workforce that could be anywhere at any time <laughs> um, and not, and also on different time zones, right? So when do you, when do you even call and talk to people? Um, yeah, it's an absolute challenge, but there is a camaraderie within the airports. Um, there is a natural uh, affinity among aviation workers. And don't forget, too, that the airline, airline workers are 80% organized. So we've got incredible density there. And there's a consciousness that if you work in the airline industry, you've got to have a union. Um, so there is a, there is a general sense of um, solidarity and necessity of union contracts. Um, and, and then the other thing that is beneficial here is that as uh, workers all over the country are rising up and fighting back, flight attendants are watching that because we fly to all these communities. And we also have experienced what happens when a community is devastated by, say, a bad trade deal or um, the, the tax break that gave uh, incentives for companies to take jobs out of the United States to offshore those jobs. And when those communities are destroyed, what happens is that our services cut there. So that has a direct impact on our jobs. So in some cases, our mobile workforce is very hard to organize. And in other ways, um, it's very easy because flight attendants see what's happening all across the country. And they understand very well um, how the these communities 
um, to play a big part in the jobs that we're able to do and the way that they're able to feed into our airline network. Um, so it's all really, there's a consciousness that uh, workers are really connected here like never before. And I think also flight attendants have been a great voice for public safety. And that relates to what the teachers did. The teachers were not only uh, organizing and bargaining for good jobs for teachers, they were very clear with the communities that they were bargaining to make sure that the children in those communities had good schools and had the ability to have access to good education. And that is really, that bargaining for the public good is something that's very important for all unions to be taking up right now, and it's naturally happening. Because, as we said during the government shutdown, if the federal sector workers can't do their jobs, we can't do our jobs. And so there is this real consciousness among flight attendants that we're very connected to people, not to mention on a very granular level, that we see people from all different communities jammed together on our planes every single day. We have the great American experience at 35,000 feet every time we go to work. Um, so there's, there is a real um, connection there that is very helpful when we're talking with our members and engaging them in these fights. One thing I wanted to underscore, which I learned, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, about the way or the challenge you have in organizing. I used to think because flight attendants typically get along quite well when they're on the plane, when they're working together as a crew, that they all knew each other. You get on a plane and you're on a shift, you're on a flight, and basically all your friends, are the other flight attendants, are getting on the plane and you're working together. But I was flying once and I was interviewing for a podcast a couple of flight attendants, and they said to me, and I'm speaking mostly about the big carriers, that usually they don't know each other because you're being shifted around so much that it's quite common to not know any of your fellow flight attendants for that flight. Is that a fair thing? Uh, that Yes, it's very common that flight attendants will show up to a flight and not have ever flown with uh, the rest of the crew before. That's, that's a very common occurrence. Um, it also just so happens that because it's such a unique job, um, even when you show up to a flight where that's the case, where you're meeting people for the first time, you already have an incredible common bond. And um, so there, there is a camaraderie, even even when you haven't had time to build that up personally. Um, it's and it's not always the case. I should say, um, as a caveat, that um, as uh, flight attendants gain seniority, um, oftentimes within those seniority brackets on the more um, on the flights that are more desirable, um, you'll you'll more commonly be flying with the same people. And so there, there is the ability to get to know each other as well and fly with the same people too. Um, but it could be any time that you could show up and, and not have ever actually met the other people that you're working with before. So I assume that you can use at least technology to communicate with your flight attendants in terms of the union, but I also understand that technology is also being used often by airlines to basically interfere with the union's connection with its members and especially to frustrate the ability to organize as a, as and as I understand it, that especially has happened at Delta, where I think the company uses its uh, online system where flight attendants log on to get their, I guess, their roster to post anti-union messages. Is that right? That's absolutely right. I'll give you the example of the 2010 election where Delta spent $38 million um, to um, really 
um, try to denigrate AFA um, and um, keep flight attendants from voting for a union. Um, and so when flight attendants, one of the things that they would do is that when they would show up for work, they had to sign in on their computer. And before they could sign in and actually say that they were there and confirm that they weren't late uh, for their duty day, uh, was watch an anti-AFA video. So here they had to, they actually were required to watch this um, before they could say that they were at work and really sign in. And on top of that, Delta then uh, directed them to the voting site to cast their vote against the union. Um, and that also, you know, would give someone the impression, hey, my employer is watching me. There's a lot of fear and intimidation here. I don't have the backing of a union. And now do they also know how I'm voting? Oh, geez, if they know that, I'm not sure that I want to vote for the union. So these are, yeah, these are tactics that have been used by the company, and, and we have that all documented uh, about some of the tactics that Delta used uh, the last time flight attendants voted for a union in 2010. And that's the airline's version of what we know a, is a captive audience meeting, essentially what a company, say, in an auto plant will do where a union doesn't have the same access to the workforce to talk about the benefits of a union the company uses that captive audience framework inside the factory to put out those anti-union messages. That would be the airline's version, I assume. Well, the airline uses all of it. The airline uses the, um, the, the technology, and they also will call people in for specific meetings to have those, uh, actually, oftentimes to have one-on-one uh, captive meetings with these individuals or to call them at home. But yes, they use all of the tactics in the airline industry. Mm. One other workplace question that I want to get briefly to two larger issues that you've been quite vocal about and speaking out about. But the, the workplace issue that I'm wondering about is the questions of violence in the workplace, meaning I've done some work with the bus drivers union and here they are uh, interacting with the public, taking uh, passengers from one place to the other. And one of the things they confront a lot is violence. When a passenger, an unruly passenger gets on the bus, there's often violence that targets the bus driver. How bad is that right now for flight attendants who are in the air flying? Well, look, um, people are being jammed into a smaller space um, right next to other human beings, and oftentimes that makes temperatures rise. And what we find is that we spend a good portion of our day de-escalating conflict. Um, We have, for years, uh, lobbied to increase the penalties and fines for anyone who acts up and and, um, assaults a flight attendant or interferes with our duties. And so though there, there is a general understanding among the pub, public that if you act out on a plane, it's going to, you're, you're going to have a rough time. Um, you're going to be held responsible. And I would credit the media with doing a lot of reporting on any time that uh, someone's arrested from a flight. Um, because we use all of those deterrents to try to get people to settle down. It's a problem. It's a problem that we deal with every day. Um, flight attendants are master de-escalators. They're, they have incredible emotional intelligence. And, you know, most flights go off without a hitch. Um, but if flight attendants were not there, I can tell you uh, there would be a lot more brawls in the air, <laughs> a lot more um, uh, potential violence and injuries. Um, and really, it's because of the work that they do right there uh, on the front lines and then the work of our union um, to back up uh, flight attendants on the plane and to help the public understand that they, they need to follow the instructions of flight attendants on the plane or else, you know, there's real consequences. Um, that has kept um, people more safe because of those actions. 
Now, I recently did an article in wearing my journalistic hat on human slavery and just the global crisis, the millions of people who are in slave-like conditions for lots of reasons. And I noted, and this was pretty amazing and interesting, that you're quite involved in something called 100,000 Eyes in the Skies, which is about trying to identify human trafficking and basically confront it. Tell me about that. Sure. So uh, we really became interested in this um, topic and um, wanted to do something about it because we're charged with the safety, health, and security of the passengers in our care. And as we became more and more aware of the growing business of human trafficking and the use of transportation to move people around and on our planes, um, we had to be able to do something about it. And we had members who were coming to us and saying that they had uh, seen something that didn't feel right, but they didn't know what to do. So in 2015, we launched a campaign for 100,000 Eyes in the Skies, and the, um, the purpose was to gain required training for recognizing and reporting human trafficking on the planes, required training for all flight attendants. Um, and it, within exactly 12 months, we were successful in that. We got Congress to pass a law um, that said that all flight attendants in the industry have to be trained to recognize and report. Um, since that time, this past year, we actually expanded that to all airport, um, frontline airport personnel. Um, so we're tapping right into a massive um, infrastructure that we have in aviation um, to be able to recognize and report these issues that um, for a moment of time are in our workspace. And then once, once people are uh, taken away to the slice of slavery, you may not see them again until they've been used so many times that they are, you know, they either turn up dead or are, you know, pushed back out onto our streets essentially as, you know, people who can't even function anymore because they've been so abused for so long and so reused over and over again. Um, so this is, this is a really a serious problem. And we identified it as, as something that we could really take part in having uh, a major role in um, combating and in letting traffickers know that we're trained and we're, we're on the lookout for them and we're going to report them every time and also hopefully, hopefully to serve as a deterrent. Um, but we, we were successful in fairly short order, um, and we continue to promote this and um, promote our work and, and promote our role. And uh, flight attendants have been successful um, since this training has occurred in recognizing and reporting and bringing people to justice. Hmm. And then the last thing I wanted to raise was a really interesting piece that I saw that you wrote for Vox about climate change. And it seems to me that your what you said in that piece about severe turbulence becoming much more frequent and intense due in part to climate change kind of melded two things, both your advocacy and looking out for the health and welfare of of your members, flight attendants, but also your activism in the broader sense for society as a labor leader around the issue of climate change. So talk about that for a second. Sure. Uh, you know, the Green New Deal um, was, of course, attacked right away. And one of the things that we heard as flight attendants was, oh, this is, you know, this is legislation that's going to keep all the planes on the ground in 10 years. And um, so, you know, we we have been talking about the fact that the severe storms have had an impact on our work life uh, with increased um, turbulence, which is a very severe occupational hazard. Um, and also airplanes just staying on the ground when there's severe weather, uh, we can't fly. And that disrupts um, our work life. And in some cases, it has meant uh, not flying to locations for months and months 
at a time, which means, uh, you know, in some cases, lost pay for us. Um, so every time the, the planes stay on the ground, uh, uh, because of the effects of climate change today, our jobs are impacted. And so to say that the solutions to climate change are going to be the job killer just isn't true. And so we really felt like we had a moral responsibility um, to um, really speak up about how we're being affected today by climate change and um, really call people to a discussion about solutions here. We shouldn't be afraid to take on uh, the very real challenges that we have today for our, our families and our world. And uh, we just felt like we could be um, a reasonable voice here, um, calling out the inaccuracies and the, and the uh, you know, political one-liners uh, to try to take us to a place of just uh, having a political identification and belief system to getting to a place where, no, we can, you know, we can be a part of this discussion and we should be a part of this discussion because climate change is real. It's coming. We're we're seeing the effects of it right now. It's affecting our jobs right now. And any solutions to address it need to take into consideration what our jobs look like in the future. So we want to be a part of this discussion because we want to create policy that not only addresses climate change, but creates good jobs for Americans. And who better to be a part of that discussion than the people who know the front lines are going to be able to engage um, in the conversation with um, ideas and understanding about how these things work right in our workplaces and uh, demand policy where everyone takes part in um, forming uh, solutions where everyone contributes and um, includes solutions that ensures that when we are investing in infrastructure that helps us address climate change, that that infrastructure is also baked into rights um, and rules that confirm that there's going to be good jobs out of this policy. That'll do it for this week's podcast. I want to thank my guests, Phyllis Bennis and Sarah Nelson. Our audio editor, as usual, is David Hebden. Thanks to our sponsor, the National Union of Healthcare Workers. Please do subscribe and support the podcast. You can do that by going over to workinglife.org, clicking on the podcast tab, and looking for our link to Patreon. Thanks for listening. Look forward to having you back next week.